hey, it's Amy. And I was just chatting with my husband about how comfortable his hoodie was, and he told me, you have got to order me another one of these. The Barrel Horse Life store is unlike any store. Here you get to pick the style, the color, the size, and then it's shipped directly to your front door. Their size is extra small through 5XL. Men's, women's, kids, so much more to choose from. I'd really love for you to check it out for yourself at www.barrelhorselife.store. And if I may add, you have to check out the most comfortable hoodie. It's my favorite and, of course, my husband's favorite. Again, that's www.thebarrelhorselife.store. If you Google the fastest barrel racing horses, you will get roughly 498,000 results. That's a lot. I mean, comparatively, if you Google the fastest hamster in the world, Google spits out a whopping 56 million results. No joke. <laughs> and crap, that little dude is so fast. Anyways, okay, back to horses. The first few horses that come up are DM Sister Heyday, aka as we all know his sister probably the most famous Palomino mare of this generation. The next horse that came up was a legendary scamper, owned and ridden by none other than the queen herself, Charmaine James. What do these two amazing horses have in common? Is that they do have some of the fastest times in the United States. If you Google the fastest horses on a standard pattern, you will find a whole different ballgame. When it comes to the fastest horses on a standard barrel racing pattern, over two-thirds of the horses in the top of the charts are either Brazilian horses or rode by Brazilian riders. And if you've made it this far into my podcast by now, you know that I love to ask questions. I want to know how and why things work. My poor parents, ugh. Barrel racing in Brazil is something that has always intrigued me. They ride completely different than we do. They hardly ever use their horn. Their horses are wicked fast, they're bigger, and they're breaking our standard pattern records by over a half of a second. I had to find out how they do it differently. I'm Amy Davenport, and this is the Barrel Horse Life Podcast. This episode, Shannon Kerr. In 1993, Dr. John West showed that EIPH occurs during exercise when blood vessels in the lungs rupture. This is due to stress caused by high blood pressure on the inside of the vessels and strong suction forces on the outside. Only flare strips and LASIKs, used together or alone, have been clinically proven to reduce EIPH. LASIKs works by reducing the high internal pressures and flare strips work by reducing the suction forces on the outside. See the science at flarestrips.com. Well, Shannon, I'll let you just start off by telling us about yourself and who you are, a little bit about your background, and how you ended up where you are today. Okay, well, this is kind of a long story. <laughs> and some people right. think I could even write a book or something about how I came to be where I am today. So, to begin with, I was born and raised in Oklahoma. When I was a, when I was two years old, my mother left my father. And I was adopted to begin with as a little baby, so... And she left, and my father was a policeman, and he was actually killed in a line of duty when I was 11. 
so sorry. So I no, that's okay. So I was raised by my grandparents, my father's parents, my mother. You know, my adopted mother, who I call my mother, but she had some. She has three sons, so I technically have brothers, but I never really had much contact with them ever in my life growing up. You know, because they they had different fathers. And so it was kind of after she had left and things like that, okay? I was raised by my grandparents, who were these amazing people. My grandfather was advertising director for Coors Beer. He fought in World War II. He's just like the most amazing person on the planet. Even to this day, I think I have more respect for him now than I did even as a kid. And they were my best friends. And they gave me a good life. I, you know, made perfect grades. I played all kinds of sports. But they would not let me have a horse. I was crazy about horses, but they were city people, golf people, so there was, like, no horse. So they would find me books and things about horses, but never an actual horse. Mm-hmm. And so when I was 16 and I could drive, I stopped at a local racehorse training track, a little public track there in my hometown. And I walked in the alleyway, and I met this guy that was a trainer who was an ex-jockey, and I was like, I just want to ride horses. So I actually started out galloping racehorses. And I did that for a long time for free, just because I wanted to ride. And then I bought a horse and did not tell my grandparents and used him as a pony horse. So when I went off to college at Oklahoma State University, I took the horse with me. My family still never knew I owned him. (laughs) And then, uh, yeah, I know, it's kind of funny. Kind of funny, not funny. But uh, so anyway, when I got to Stillwater, I really didn't have a lot of money for board. And so I made arrangements at a jumping facility to board the horse there in exchange for helping the people there with problem horses. So um, I did that. And when I was 19, my grandma died. And when I was 20, my grandpa died. So I basically put myself through school. I got up early in the morning, galloped racehorses, went to school, then worked as a waitress at Pizza Hut uh, during the lunch hour buffet. I went back to school, and at night I worked as an intramural sports supervisor for the school itself. So I worked three jobs to put myself through college. Mm-hmm. I had wanted to be a veterinarian. I was accepted to vet school, actually. But because my grandparents had died, there was no way I could go to school full-time. I couldn't pay rent and car and anything, you know, food. So instead, I studied and got a degree in livestock marketing, equine nutrition, and equine exercise physiology. So, but during this time, I was riding jumping horses, dressage horses, and still galloping racehorses. And I had a boyfriend who was a saddlebone rider. And I think I was 22 when I started to run barrels. I took his rope horse, and with the help of this three-time Olympic dressage trainer that was retired uh, from Wichita, Kansas, he helped me train my very first barrel horse. And, you know, obviously the horse was already broke. He was a six-year-old gelding that had been loping. And in 30 days, I took him to a big race in Shawnee, Oklahoma, and won the 2D. And then I actually filled my permit on him. (laughs) And so, you know, and then I was kind of hooked because I was like, man, you win money at these things. Because when I would go to the jumping shows, it's just ribbons. Mm -hmm. You know, and I didn't have a lot of money. You know, I was barely making ends meet as it was. So that was really cool. So then I graduated college, and I was still in barrels. I filled my permit the first year that I ran pro with that horse, that gelding, and then a little cotton six. And then I started to sell the horses. 
And then I met a guy from Italy, and he invited me to go to Italy to train horses. And I had a really good job with the government at this time when I met this guy. I was 29, I think. But I decided to go because I, I had no family. I had no children. And I was like, you know, why not, right? I had worked for the government for six years, so I could always get a job back with the government. And so I did that and moved to Italy. And I was one of the first people to import bloodlines to Italy as far as the Vastapane, the Firewater Glitz, the Frenchman's Guys. I was the first one to take those kinds of horses there as far as own sons and daughters, okay? And I won a lot there. I won just about everything there on different horses. Uh, the main horse that stood out was a Firewater Glitz stallion named Firewater Fast. And he was so good, I decided to come back to the United States and... Um, and a thought at the time I had a really good partnership with Judd. He would send me the blown up security horses and he would send them to Europe and I would fix them and then sell them into Europe. He'd seen the horse, he believed in the horse too. And so Judd Little really helped me with that. I paid to send the horse back, but Judd gave me a truck and trailer and a gas card. So I went out to California, picked him up after the quarantine. It was doing pretty well. The horse was placing at rodeos. And then he fell. And when he did, he tore the sacral ligament in his back. So when he did that, I went back to Judd Whistles. And Judd was like, you can stay here. You can stay my horses. But he had other trainers there. And I didn't really feel really comfortable. Didn't really feel like I fit in. And I've always been an extremely independent person. So I leased a facility in Gainesville, Texas, from an Italian man that I knew that had raining horses. And he had a really nice place that was sitting there empty. So I rented it, and were, I think I had 19 horses in training and had them all sold to Europe, actually. They were all for Europeans. And during this time, I met, actually, my now husband, who we call him Shake, and he had lived there for 20 years. He was a horseshoer. And he, it's, his story is really interesting. He went to, to America with only $300 in his pocket at 19 years old, and became one of the best horseshoers in northern Texas. He shot 32 world champions. He shot um, Doc Tickery, Doc Pichotti. He shot for Ron Rawls. He became one of the best shoers there. And what he did was he never went on vacation. He never bought a new truck, never bought a nice house. He sent all his money back to Brazil and invested in cattle because he, he loves purebred cattle that are here in Brazil. It's a breed called Melotti. It's uh, kind of the father of the Brahma. They took mostly no lot of genetics to make the Brahma that most Americans know of. So it's why do you do cattle with the hump? Mm-hmm. And I met him. I was training there. I was actually thinking to stop training and go back to work for the government. And But I met him, and he's the love of my life. And one day he said, you know, Shannon, I want to go back to Brazil. I want to retire and manage my cattle, and I want you to go with me. But I didn't know much about the barrel racing in Brazil at the time. And, you know, I... You know how it is when you have horses and clients, and if you're a professional horse trainer, it is not an easy life. And I thought, well, do I do it? Do I not? You know, my experience in Italy was bad with my ex. And I was like, do I make that mistake twice? You know, in my mind, that's what I was thinking. So I prayed about it, and I said, you know, I'm not going to risk losing the love of my life over the fear of something that had happened in my past. So I sent all those horses. I exported 19 horses in one time to Europe, went there, spent about 45 days 
with the horses, giving them to their owners, showing them how to ride them, etc. And then um, my husband, Jake, and I moved to Brazil. And when I came, I did bring Firewater Fast to Brazil with me because he qualified. I didn't really have anywhere to put him. I really didn't think I was going to run barrels. And I had met a man named Paulo Fara. And Paulo is one of Brazil's largest breeders. He actually has 900 horses at the moment. And I called him, and I said, hey, Paulo, I have this horse. He's at the airport in Brazil. Can you pick him up and keep him, and I'll pay you the board. I'll pay you whatever I need until I can figure out what I'm going to do. So when I got to Brazil, I stopped at his farm, and I made a partnership. He liked the horse so much, and he, you know, he breeds barrel horses. I made a partnership, and uh, the horse stayed with him to be a breeding stallion. And then I got the percent of the stud fees, and then he gave me some foals. And I, I really didn't think I was going to run barrels anymore. But um, I also made a partnership with a friend of my husband's that also raised some horses. And it just, it just worked. And then I actually got more involved than ever before in the horse industry. And it's just been kind of a storybook thing. I went through a lot of struggle. But I really believe that, you know, I'm a religious person. I don't throw my religion on people. But I really believe that everything I've done in my life, even my bad situation in Italy, as far as, you know, relationship-wise, was God setting me up for where I am now. Because had I not gone through that, that situation in Italy, knowing it would take me at least a year to learn the language, a year to get used to the food, you know, it's not easy to go to another country and not understand anything. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it takes a strong character to do that. Oh, yeah. And I just that that set me up because when I came here, I kind of knew what I was in for, you know, as far as the transition process. Mm-hmm. And maybe had I not gone through that in Italy, I wouldn't have stayed here either because it's not always easy here. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of my story. <laughs> it's kind of long. I'm sorry about that. Yeah, but no. that kind of sets you up to explain why I'm here. I've been in Brazil now for 12 years. In July will be 12 years. Yeah, that's wonderful. I feel like, I've been in situations not like yours, but where I feel like God has used my enemies for my advantage, for sure. Yeah, and I'm a firm believer now that whenever anything bad happens, it it means that the door is going to open to something great. Absolutely. So sometimes when I get in a bad situation or, you know, I'm I'm not a person that gets depressed. I'm sadly a seriously optimistic person. I'm almost always happy. (laughs) So, but now when something bad happens or I get in a situation that's very frustrating, I think, okay, Shannon, just go through it because this means something better is going to happen. And it does. Yeah. You'd be like one of those good friends to have that could just hound on you and say, there's something to learn in this situation. Don't get down on yourself. Because, you know, we all need that kind of person in our lives. (laughs) Yeah. So I'm, yes, I'm terribly happy. It's almost frustrating sometimes. (laughs) I cannot stay mad. I cannot stay sad. It's just something I was born with, but I think it helped get me through, you know, the loss that I had when I was younger. Now that you've been in Brazil for this long, um, you and your husband are essentially farmers and cattle ranchers. And so tell us what are the farms and stables like over there in Brazil compared to here, what we have in the United States? Okay, well, first, Brazilians love Americans. I mean, they, they dress like them. The, the, the culture here is very country, very ranchy, very agriculture. I mean, agriculture is the number one industry of Brazil. So that is really cool. Like in Italy, it's not like that. It's 
but here it is. So I all automatically felt more comfortable here. Um, you know, here there's still a, a large separation of classes. You have rich and you have poor, and just in the last ten to twenty years, you're seeing more middle class. Okay, but there's still a big separation. So people here that generally have horses usually tend to have a lot of money. Uh, a lot of money from companies or ranches. It's not drug money. It, it's, it's legit money from big businesses. And here, like I tell people, the horse industry is huge because Brazil does not have a lot of extracurricular activities. There's only a few golf courses, and they're in the big, big cities. There's not that much bowling. There's no skating. There's, not, there's movie theaters. But that's really about it. You don't have baseball teams and summer leagues and basketball teams. You don't have that here. You have some soccer. You basically have soccer and horses. So the horse industry here is huge, even for the poor people who work a lot in the horse industry and for the wealthier people that own the animals and put on the events and go to the events, whether it's barrel racing, cutting, jumping, whatever. So when you talk about the facilities that these people have, they're usually very, very nice. Like, very nice. So, you know, my facility is a bit smaller because I like to take care of the animals myself. I have two workers that help me to feed and clean, but I'm the one who does the riding and things like that. But most places don't. Most places have a trainer that lives at the facility that rides and trains the horses, and that trainer usually has assistants that wash and clean the horses and clean the stalls and do the feeding. Most places have a guy for feeding, a guy for cleaning stalls, and one or two assistants to the main trainer. So it's, it's on a little bit different scale, whereas in the States you have a lot of individual people like yourself or people you know. When you go to the barrel race, most girls have one or two or three horses. Here the trainers go to the race with 20, 10 to 20 to 40 horses. Oh. And most of the time they work for one farm majority of them so it's 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 not saying one is better than the other it's just different each place is different so the places here are super mega fancy most of them and very very nice and if anyone ever says oh i don't want to sell my horse to brazil because it's going to be mistreated they are very very wrong and here they don't have horse slaughter so horses here if they can't compete or they get older if they're not reproduction animals, they usually have an amazing life retired in a big pasture or maybe they go to work on a ranch as a ranch horse. So most horses here have pretty good endings to their lives as well. The, the stigma for most people about Brazil is, like, like you said, it's more, I don't want to say more of a poverty level, but it's not big, fancy, nice ranches. Like you said, I, I had no idea. Yeah, and it's, most of these guys who have these horses have ranches, too, for cattle. And when we're talking about cattle ranches, so you have an idea. We are considered very small on the ranching scale. My husband raises purebreds, and he's been in EPDs and genetics, so he has a very good name. But, you know, we run about 1,200 head of cattle, and we are considered very, very small. Oh my so everything here in Brazil is on a large scale. Most of the ranchers we know have anywhere from 3,000 to 30,000 to 100,000 head of cattle. So these places usually have lots of pasture. All these cattle are grass-fed. So they need these horses, too. So even me, like I had a horse that was at a race, 
I was letting a girl from Canada ride him. And something happened in the warm-up pen, and he fell on some concrete thing and cut the artery in his leg, okay? <clears throat> he recovered. You know, he cannot be a competition horse. But for us, it's okay. He can just be a ranch horse. You know, because here, the cowboys don't have four-wheelers. Four-wheelers are here, but they're really expensive. So here, even the ranching is done on horseback. You know, 99% is done on horseback still. So, you know, it's okay. He can't compete. He'd just be a ranch horse, and he lives in the pasture and has a great little life. Well, comparatively to here, a career-ending injury here that means that most horses just become pasture animals um but in your case you get the opportunity to let them have a second chance and let them have a good life that would yeah be awesome. and here and here because we don't have any harsh winters yeah. we don't even feed them they just live on grass and salt and they look great you know i mean we don't you don't have that expansive grain you know yeah and you just keep them tr- keep their feet trimmed and and so and another thing, like I hear people say, oh, um, Brazilians buy horses and take them to Brazil and kill them for insurance. That is absolutely ludicrous because, one, our insurance premiums here are extremely high, and insurance companies here are not predictable to pay. And an imported horse here has so much value as a reproduction animal that the last thing anyone would want is for that horse or animal to die. And what I told some people one time, was like, you know, horses die in USA, too. And, you know, you don't see Brazilians saying, oh, my God, that horse died in USA. So horses, unfortunately, die. But nobody here, nobody would ever, ever kill one of these imported animals for insurance claims. Because the horse is worth more alive. That that rumor that they bring horses here and then kill them, that's pretty, to me, it's sad because it's so not true. You know, like, for example, Dash for Perks, they brought him here. The horse was already old, and if anyone who knows stallions knows that anytime you move an older stallion, it's really hard on them mm-hmm. to acclimate to a new place, especially one that's almost 30. Mm-hmm. So he came here, and uh, we'll talk about this later when we wanted to talk about exploitation, but he did get a disease called pyroplasmosis, which comes from sex. And because of his age and the stress, you know, he died from complications of pyroplasmosis. But the owner of that horse did everything in their power to save that horse. You know, they would never want that horse to die. That would be really hard. I could not imagine, especially with a horse being that old, trying to transport him, that would be, that'd be hard on any horse, let alone. Yeah, you know, they shouldn't, in my opinion, they should have just left him in America and collected the frozen semen and sent it. But, you know, but the problem with that too is the fees here. We can talk about that later, um, about the breeding, but, but my point of all this is the places here are phenomenal. Even the people that don't have as much money, like the more middle-class people that have horses, like it's usually your middle-class people that go to rodeos, and they maybe don't have such fancy facilities, but they do have nice facilities and grass. And I mean, the horses here are so well taken care of. They're very, very well taken care of. And the places are different in the sense that um, you don't see a lot of, you know, five or ten acre houses with little barns and things like that, like you do in America. You have just really big fancy places, or you have ranches where these people keep their horses. So it's just just different in that way. Talk a little bit about what you guys feed. I know you said you have plenty of grasses and pastures. And for example, here I live in Illinois in the states in the Midwest. 
in the winter time, mm-hmm. you know, we'll just say from about Halloween and maybe November until like middle of March, it is frigid. <laughs> the ground is frozen. It is hard. Our grass is brown. We have to, you know, save hay all summer long and store it for the winter time. You guys are completely different than what we are. So elaborate because you guys don't have seasons like we do, correct? Yeah, not really. Actually, I, I say we have two seasons, hot and less hot season. <laughs> <laughs> so we are actually in less hot season, which is amazing. It's kind of like fall there. I love it. Um, winter. It's actually also our dry season. So in our winter, which we're in right now from June to August is our winter. <clears throat> it, it's dry, so our grasses do dry up, but there's still grass. <laughs> Obviously, you have to manage your pastures correctly, but there is. Another interesting thing is we have different types of grass. So my husband told me that Brazil, back in the day when it was founded, there is no native grass here, that it was all trees. Hmm. And as it got cleared out, the grasses that are here are actually more native to Africa. They brought grasses over. And there are some grasses here that horses should not eat because, it will one, it will cut their lips really bad, and, two, it inhibits calcium. They start to grow these bone masses on our faces and things. But that particular grass is amazing for cattle. So on our property here where I live, we have 160 acres where we actually live. And it's the property where my husband brings his yearling bulls to prep to sell. And then we have the horses. So I, we have about 70% of the property in cattle grass and about 30% in horse grass. And the horse grass that we use is a type of chieftain, a chieftain grass. Um, but it does get drier in the winter, but they just eat the dry grass. Um, not this year, but three years prior, for three years in a row, we had a serious drought here in Brazil. It was very bad. Things were burning. There was no grass. Um, our cattle got so skinny. And my husband is so funny. He's like, it's okay. It will rain. And sure enough, the cattle get skinny, and the rain comes, and they get fat. And the breed of cattle they have here actually get pregnant better skinny. So um, they don't they don't worry about the cattle getting skinny here, like in the states. You know, like there you're like, oh my gosh, it's winter, I need to get hay. My cattle lost some weight. Um, here they don't they don't care because they know as soon as spring comes, the cattle fatten back up. Mm-hmm. But um, for example, my horses cannot go in the pasture. Because right now, my entire program and barn is set for exportation back to the United States. So I cannot risk my horses getting picks. So I actually have everything on a dirt paddock or in a stall. And I feed, they have amazing feed companies here, amazing. Um, the research and nutrition is great. Our government is controlled so hard feed and supplements. They have to make feed and make supplements under the same guidelines that medicines are made from, okay? So everything has to be tested, everything has to be precise, everything has to be exact. And I see the feed here, it's called Guabi. That's the name of the company. And I see their very best feed that they have. It's a complete feed. It's it's really high in fat, it's lower in protein, it's really high in um, vitamins, and it has chelated minerals. So I see that, and then I see supplements from a company called Organax. And the reason I see supplements, I'm not a big, you know, as a nutritionist, if you feed a good seed, you don't need to feed supplements. 
But because the horses are in my care, um, I'm actually eliminating this disease from ticks called paraplasmosis. I do feed them supplements to make sure their immune system is up, to make sure that they do not lose weight because the medicines we give them is like a chemotherapy. So my horses also eat free choice alfalfa with a little bit of hay mixed in. So I do have to buy hay and I do have to buy alfalfa. And people that have competition, horses also have to buy hay and alfalfa because most of their horses are also sold. Uh, the horses that usually don't need that are, you know, the mares on the pasture or the young horses on the pastures and things like that. But most competition horses are stalled. And here, the people spare no expense of nutrition. Because, you know, like we're going to talk about later, we have a lot of drug testing policies and, and restrictions. So nutrition is really key on the mind of most the trainers and owners. So... Um, but see, I think it's an amazing feed. I think it's, it's just as good or better than the best feed in the United States. And then, uh, like I said, we do have the supplements. And our supplements here, because the government is so controlling, it's amazing because they actually work. And if they don't work, the government won't allow the companies to sell them. And if the, if the government comes in and tests, and it's not exactly as it says on the tube or as it says on the bucket, the company has to pull that product and they're fined heavily. Oh, wow. So the product, yeah, so the, the supplements I feed really, really work. Um, the results are amazing. My horses don't have to eat that much um, to maintain their weight also because of the good feed. You know, if, if anybody's going to do anything, if you're going to spend anything on your horse, it's a good feed. And you know, in my mind, a good feed for a competition horse is one that is higher in fat, lower in protein, really high in the water-soluble vitamins like vitamin A, D, E, and C, and must have chelated minerals so that your horse is getting that full amount of absorption. And if you can find any feed that has those things, you've got a good feed. Well, while we're on the subject, I know that you have talked about in other podcasts that there's so many different rules and regulations when it comes to barrel racing for you guys. I know you have mentioned that you guys are 100% drug-free. Is that correct? It is because, first of all, so bureaucratic bureaucratic here. Oh, by the way, if I start, if I throw in a word that you don't understand, sometimes my brain switches languages, just let me know, okay? <laughs> okay <laughs> I'm we'll sorry, I didn't understand that. Okay. <laughs> um, so, for example, <clears throat> just so you know, to start with, how hard it is to run barrels here, we have to pull blood on our horses. Our exams have to be good for 60 days. So we actually have to pull blood every 45 days. And we have to test for Coggins, you know, equine infectious anemia. And we have to test for another disease called glanders. It costs us $160 million each test per horse. Okay? Which that would be like you spending $160 American dollars. Okay? Let's, let's forget about exchange rates for right now. Okay. So we have to do that on every horse every 60 days. We have to take those exams and take them to our Department of Agriculture office, along with the vaccine card of the horse, along with a note from our vet saying the horse is healthy. And then we have to pay them about 50 bucks to get a, a document to travel that's called the GTA. So you have to have that document to travel along with all those exams. If you get stopped by the police, it's an $8,000 fine. And they couldn't impound your horses and your truck and trailer. 
so then you get to the race. When you get there, there is a vet waiting. You don't just pull in and unload your horses. There's a specific place at every race, every rodeo, where you unload your horses. You unload your horse. The vet is waiting there. He gets some exams. He checks that horse to make sure that they match. Okay? And then you have to walk your horse to where you're going to compete or tie up, and then you have to drive your truck and trailer empty to that place. So then, before you leave the competition, you have to pay another 40 or $50 to get that paper, that GTA, to go back home. So we spend anywhere from 80 to 100 each competition just to take our horses. Okay? So there's that. <laughs> That's very frustrating. Another thing is, um, almost all the races are governed by our association, which is like the AQHA of Brazil. It's called the ABQM. So the ABQM has very strict rules about doping. They follow the same rules as the FDA, you know, for the International Jumping and Olympic Committees, the same rules as what they test for on racehorses. Mm-hmm. So they do not test us at every race. But the tests that they do can, can detect some of the, the drugs up to two months out, you know, depending on what the drug is. Mm-hmm. So, and most rodeos don't test, but there are a couple of big, big rodeos that do. But if we get caught testing, it's a six-month suspension and an eighteen to $38,000 fine, depending on the drug that you were caught using. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah, so, and in the six months, the trainer cannot compete, the horse cannot compete, and other horses owned by the owner cannot compete. So the risk of being caught is just not worth it. Now, am I telling you that nobody drugs? There are probably people that do. You know, there have been people that have gotten caught, you know, but I will tell you that the majority of us trainers don't do it because the risk of getting caught is so high because they don't always test the winners. Sometimes they do a random test. Mm-hmm. So, um, and probably, let's say we have 300 events a year. They probably test 150 of them. So, you know, half of the races, there's going to be some from the association there to test horses. So it's just not worth it, yeah. you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but I believe that's why the trainers are so into nutrition and exercise and fitness. And, I mean, they really take it to an extreme here. And, honestly, you know, I've been here for 12 years. I've never had a bleeder. I've never seen a horse bleed. There are some that have blood, but you just don't see it as prevalent as you do there. Um, but it, it, it is real. We test. We have lots of rules. We can only use certain bits. We cannot use chain curb straps. Our curb straps have, if they're chained, they have to be two flat chains. And what attaches to the bridle, to the bit itself, has to be nylon or leather. Um, we can't use a lot of nose bands like you guys do there. Uh, there's a lot of things. I mean, there's a lot of rules here. As soon as we, in every competition, every single one, whether it's a rodeo or an open show, a regular barrel race, as soon as we're done running, there's a judge. And the judge checks the horse for blood from spurs, from his nose, from anywhere. Um, you have to take the bridle off the horse to show that you're using a legal bit. You know, that your bit is inside the, the rules of the association. And then if the judge thinks that you do not weigh 150 pounds, you have to weigh yourself with your tack. 
Oh, my God. So, yeah, so here you have to weigh um, in open classes 75 kilos or more, which is, I think, 165 pounds, and that includes your tax. Mm-hmm. So most trainers here, they, they're kind of like jockeys. They stay right at that mark. You know, they don't want to be over that 75 kilos. You know, they stay right at 75 kilos with their tax. Mm-hmm. Uh, for the women's classes, it's 65 kilos, which I believe is like 135 or 140 pounds. And in youth classes, there's no weight requirement that's free. But let's say your youth wants to run in the open, they have to weigh with their tax 75 kilos with 165 pounds. So you see here for sale weighted saddle pads and things like that to weigh on a horse. What's the purpose for the weight? Is there? Do you know what the answer is? Like, I wonder why they created that the whole weight um, they did it so that they felt like everybody was on an equal level gotcha. because I think what happened in the past you know some little kids would come in and outrun the professionals because here it's mostly professionals who run and they need it you know as professionals and I think they did that so that everybody is on the same level an equal playing field mm-hmm. as far as weight goes yeah so I you know they never asked me to weigh. One time they asked me to weigh, and I hugged the judge. <laughs> I was like, thank you. Because <laughs> I'm, I'm tall. I'm 5'9". I weigh about 150 pounds. So, you know, with my saddle, I'm already there. But there was one time the judge asked me to weigh. I was so happy. <laughs> my name, man. Thank you. I'll get on the scale. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so... You know, they just, another thing here, we have a lot of animal rights people. So, like, we cannot touch a horse in front of a cinch. So, that's in videos, you'll never see anyone touching the horse's shoulder. You know, like in the States, sometimes the girls will tap the horse on the shoulder to run home. Here, you're disqualified if you do that. Wow. That's crazy. Can you guys use over-unders or any kind of whips on the rear end? Yes, we can. I know you were talking about using, are you guys allowed to use... Any kind of spurs, or are there rules and regulations on what kind you can use? No, we can use any kind of spur as long as you don't cut the horse. Yeah. You know, that's, well, yeah, obviously. And these, guys can, yeah. and these guys can be pretty rough. And actually, I was disqualified once at a rodeo because I guess I was just kicking my horse, and I cut her a little bit on the side, and I got disqualified. So a lot of guys, you'll see when they go to run, they'll actually tape their spurs to tape around the rowels. Yeah. So they don't accidentally cut them, you know. Yeah. So really quick, I want to jump back because I know that's, I, I don't want to get too far ahead before I forget to ask a question. So you had talked about obviously can't run on any drugs and you guys don't have a lot of bleeders. So for those horses that have to run on Lasix, I know um, a few episodes ago in my podcast, I had had a really good interview with um, the people from Achieve Equine that are the makers of the flare nasal strips. And we had a really good discussion about the lungs, how they work. There was a lot of science involved in the conversation. I'll just put it that way to make a long story short. So knowing now that uh, the majority of competition horses can be bleeders, what do you guys use to help prevent horses from bleeding? I guess so you can't use Lasix. So do you guys have an alternative for Lasix down there? Well, yes. First of all, um, the horses here are amazingly fit like fit like i i've never seen in the united states and i've given lots of clinics i've done lots of places and 
the fitness level of the horses here is insane. Yeah, I would agree. The guys here, they put the horses on the autom- you know, these exercisers, and then they ride them. The horses get rode six days a week and exercise. Like, even in my own property, my own horses, they go on the walker in the morning before they eat. Um, they go on the walker while they clean the stalls, and then they get the food already, and then they take them off the walker, and that's when they have their breakfast. Then they go on the walker again in the evening before I ride them, and then I train on them, and then they get put away. So another thing, too, is, is you know, here they really, like, will sprint horses for, like, three minutes. Oh, wow. So, like, twice a week. Because, you know, at three minutes is when you really deplete all that glycogen and everything starts to turn into an acidic, acidic state. And they do that to build lung capacity. So they really focus on building lung capacity of the horses. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing is, is, you know, red blood cells are what, you know, are coming from the spleen to help the horse, you know, breathe when he's, you know, in that state of anaerobic work. So we, we supplement with a lot of iron. And another thing, too, is, you know, I talked about this company, Organax. They have a product here called um, CetoFlu Turbo. And it is made, um, I know it has eucalyptus oil in it. It has spine in it. I can't remember what else in it. It has four or five ingredients that actually help with inflammation of the airway system. So we give this to our horses Sometimes if we're going to work them really hard in training and we give it to them before they run, it's like 20 cc's in the mouth. It's a liquid. It smells really good, actually, because of the eucalyptus oil. And I I have horses that are coughing, and you can give this to them, and they stop coughing. So, yeah, and and they're actually, I think next month, are going to open sales in the United States. And I think one of the products they sent no, they didn't send this, and I told them they must send this because <laughs> it's an amazing product. Um, so it's this all-natural supplement because we cannot use flare strips. I brought some here. I put them on my horse. I got disqualified. And what the judge told me was I could hide an injury, that the, the, where they go, it could hide a cut. It could hide something. So we're not allowed to use flare strips here. Mm-hmm. So, um, But I do use this fetal flu. And, you know, I think what it is is these guys work so much on getting the horses super fit. And we do have these products like Cetus Flu. I'm sure there's some other companies that make them. I'm just telling you the ones that I use. But we do have these supplements that help with that, that are all natural. Um, you know, another thing is here, <clears throat> we focus really a lot on liver health of our horses. Mm-hmm. And I think that in the States, I don't see that too much. I see people using Lasix, Phantomine, Butte, Clenbuterol. And because of the work that I do curing the paraplasmosis, I'm very acute to what's going on to the liver of the horse. And these medicines really, really adversely affect the liver. And if you're giving Lasix and Phantomine and Butte and Clenbuterol, you should be giving some sort of liver health supplement to uh, uh, something to help with toxication of the liver. So we really focus on that here, too. So let's say we, we, there are cases when we do have to give Lasix to a horse, you know? And, sorry, this car is going, there's these cars that drive by. Can you hear it in the background? And they announce, like, specials at the supermarket. <laughs> this is what we need to record live. So I love it. It's raw and it's transparent. You're welcome. <laughs> 
So, so here um, there is another product from Organact. I know another company has it, um, and we give that pretty continuously to our horses as well to promote liver health. Liver health. Um, but you know, I, it's just fitness. I think the majority is fitness, honestly. I think that, and I hope I don't offend anyone, but I think the problem in America, why the horses get body sore, uh, why you guys need beamers and all this other stuff that we don't have here, is the fitness. Mm -hmm. Your horses aren't there like they here. And it's also because of the industry. So, for example, if a trainer here, mind you, the trainers here, the majority of them came from poverty. And now, as a trainer, they they make very good money. A, a, a good trainer here, if you were to go work for you on your farm, would make twenty to 50000 a month. Oh. Okay? So these guys, they, they can't lose those jobs. So they really work hard for fitness. Really, like... The horses have, like, no body fat. And when I've had Americans come here or Canadians and they see my horses, the horse competition horses, they're like, oh, my God, the horses here are so skinny. They're not skinny. They're like soccer players. Mm-hmm. You know, you can see every muscle. You can see their ribs because they're, they're like the guy that, you know, the soccer player or the marathon runner. And when you go to the States, the horses are really pretty plumpy. And I think what happens is you you do these light little exercises with them, and then you go ask them to run really hard, and their system isn't built for it, and then you get the bleeding and the body soreness. Like, I hear people say, oh, I don't train the barrels that much. We train the barrels every day, every day. And our horses are not crazy. They walk in the arena, and they walk out. But um, in my opinion, and I tell this at my clinics, you need to train... If you're not training on the barrels, you need to train the movement of the barrels because you're conditioning those horses' tendons, ligaments, hooves, muscles for that particular movement. You know, it would be like me. If you, if you make me just jog a straight line for two miles and then you ask me to do something like, you know, CrossFit, I can't do it or I get sore. You know, so we condition the horses every day for the job that they're going to do, and that includes lots and lots and lots of circles. Mm-hmm. You know, and a lot of high speed, or not even high speed, but to get the heart rate in an anaerobic state for a long period of time so that the body is conditioned for when he goes in there to make that run. We work our horses hard. I may only ride one for 20 minutes, but when I'm done, he's lathered and dripping with sweat, you know, because I'm working his entire body. I'm working him from the nose to the tail. He's lifting through his rib cage. He's having to hold himself up and hold himself up and balance, you know, for a long period of time, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, it's, it, that's exactly it, you know, and, and I hope no one gets mad at me, but the truth is that the reason these horses run 16-2s and 16-1s and 16-3s on standard patterns with no drugs is because they are extremely fit and they're extremely well cared for. They eat the best feed, the best supplements. They're bathed daily. Their stalls are cleaned two and three times a day. They're fed four times a day. Really? You know, yes. I feed my horses four times a day. Mm-hmm. So, and that's hard for someone in the state. You know, a lot of people who have horses have jobs. You know, if you're a teacher, a nurse, even a mom, 
it's not easy for you to, to go out at six and feed and then feed at noon and then feed at three and then feed at eight. You know, it, it, it's infeasible. But here, because the, the number of employees that work in the stable, it's feasible. Mm-hmm. You know, that's why I'm saying it. Not one country is better than the other. They're just different. And, and what I see here is the average person that wants to just go run for fun, they get frustrated because they can't. They can't keep up with these fast 16s. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they, they start to just give up and just let the trainer run the horse. And it's, it's become an issue that the association here is trying to address because we're losing people because it's become so elite and so fast. Mm-hmm. So in an America, the sport keeps growing and growing because you're including these people that maybe are not the best, but it's their hobby and you're giving them the chance. There are races here, I kid you not, we could have 500 entries, it could be a 5D barrel race and they do not even pay anybody in the 4 and 5D. Wow. Because all the horses are one, two, one and two D. That's incredible. Yeah, it's incredible. And and I, many people are not going to believe me, but if you come here and see it with your own eyes, it just it's it's incredible. And for me, what happened to me was I was one D pro rodeo girl there, Oklahoma, won everything in Italy, and I came down here with this kind of cocky attitude, thinking, oh, I'm going to you know do great here. These guys ride like monkeys. You know, as what a lot of people said, and if you watch, a lot of people don't like how they ride. They handed it to me now. I, I came home with my tail between my legs crying. And I told my husband, I said, I don't, I don't get it, Jake. I do everything that I've always been taught, the horsemanship, everything, and they kick my ass. And he looked at me and he said, you know, Shannon, you have two choices. Quit or get better. Mm-hmm. So I went to this big race and I sat there for hours watching them train, watching them run. And I started to adapt my American style of training and evolve it towards the Brazilian style of training, but without so much of the, the body movement and the pulling, you know? So um, now these are the best horses I've ever trained. I mean, every year I'm putting out horses that are better than the last year. So being here was hard and extremely humbling, extremely humbling. But it made me the trainer that I am today and to put out the horses that I've been putting out. So it, it's, it's just, you know, I tell everyone, come and see it. You know, I have a guest house. Come with me. You know, I'll take you and show you because until you see it with your own eyes, you don't believe it because even a girl asked me about buying a horse and she's like, oh, but is it really a standard pattern? I said, yes, not only is it a standard pattern, the judges measure it, not the arena owner and not the contestants. The, associ- the judges from the association measure the pattern. Mm-hmm. And anytime anybody breaks an arena record or a world record, they stop the race and the judge remeasures it. Really? And it. That's awesome. I think that's so good because... So often, you know, it could just be the barrel setters out there that are like, oh, hand me the tape measure. But in this case, it is 100% legit. Yeah, it is. It, and it's so controlled. I mean, I'm telling you, it's communist barrel racing. I mean, uh, because it's so controlled here. And Americans just don't understand that, you know, because you can see the videos and you only see the videos from the big fancy races. Yeah. And we do run on bad ground. People are like, oh, it's because your ground is fast. No, not always. It's not. Mm-hmm. We run on bad ground, too, and 
in different arenas. It's no different than there. It's just that a lot of times the video people are at the bigger fancy races with the faster ground. Mm-hmm. You know, just like there, you know, we only see videos from Oklahoma City and wherever three, two, one action is at, right? Which are usually your bigger fancier races. It's the same situation here. Right. Um, I want to touch back on what you were talking about, about your training program. What was it that you think helped you the most? I know I couldn't imagine being in your position, just hearing you tell that story just created a reaction in me. I mean, but what was it that you really had to change to adapt, to get better, to stay in competition down there? Because most of those men, most of those trainers are men, correct? Yeah, oh, it's 90% men. When I first came here, I was the only woman. Wow. So if there's the one only thing one? I'm proud about the industry here is I think other women saw that they could do it. I remember being the first woman ever to make a final of the security here. And uh, now there's there's several. I, there's probably half a dozen women trainers now, and they're good. But I really feel like I set that example for them to come out and try to do it because it is still extremely male-dominated. And male-dominated in the sense that these are manly men-men, like men that would change your flat tire, men that could chop down a tree and build you a house. And they range from age like 18 to 35. Mm-hmm. So not only am I one of the only women, I'm one of the oldest people too that mm-hmm. runs. So it's not easy. But um, the thing I realized, one was the fitness level because I was still in that mindset of America, like, oh, my horse is good. I don't want to make them crazy on the barrels, you know, stuff like that. And the second thing was the braking. I realized that my horses were not broke. And Brazilian horses, you know, you think that they pull off them, but let me tell you something. They are mega, super fancy broke. You see them all with tie-downs. Those tie-downs, it's so interesting, this part. You know, we always put tie-downs on, you know, so the horse doesn't raise their head up and things like that, right? That's what I always thought tie-downs were for. They use tie-downs in a different way. They train the horse to back off of a tie-down. So it doesn't hold the horse's nose in position. It's there so that the horse never gets woozy on the bit. So the horses are trained. They're broke with a tie-down. They're, they're broke to lunge, they're broke to ride with a tie-down before they put a boot on it. So, like, like, let's say when I get my horse back from the breaker and I put the tie-down on it and I just barely push on it, that horse backs up, like, 50,000 miles an hour. Mm-hmm. So they're taught not to root on a tie-down, not to root on the bit, because these guys train in shanks bits but run in snaffles. And they run in the snaffle because they can get heavy-handed and the horses are so broke. They train in the sense that the horse turns when they ask them. And this is why it's so hard here for a horse to go on to somebody else to ride. The majority of the horses here are trained to win. They're not trained in the sense to be sold for someone else to ride. And this is why um, amateur riders here who are usually the owners have a hard time riding horses that are trained by the trainers. But the owners don't care. What they care about is the results so that they can sell the embryos out of the mares or sell the breeding by the stallions. Mm-hmm. So, um, so that is one thing. The use of tie-downs is really interesting. I don't ride with a tie-down, but after seeing what they do, I, I use it in that sense. If the horse starts to get moody on my bit, I put the tie-down on and get the horse to back off the bit again. But the biggest thing was breaking. 
I always, you know, I thought my horses were broke. They were not. <laughs> but now they are. So they're like, I, I tell it like this. It's like the horses here are like Ferraris or Formula One cars. They have this ton of speed with a very light handle. So I realized I was, I was driving like, I was driving like, you know, a Ford Ranger and not a Ferrari. So I had to take my horses to that next level of being broke. And the style of training, the way they train to turn their points are very different from Americans. And once I figured that out, it, it changed everything. I remember I bought some horses from the USA, some baby horses. I bought a yearling Tracees and a two-year-old Frenchman's guy. And I brought them here and I immediately went to winning with them um, with new style. And I'm still evolving. I learn something new every day. But um, it works. And, and it works like, you know, um, the horses in USA right now, the two that I think they're winning. Yeah. So it works. Yeah. And if I'm, I think I did read this online that you had a horse, I think it was just the other weekend, that won the Yeti Classic. I think its name was Shady Slick. Was that right? Yeah, he was a horse that I bought as a yearling and broke and trained. Uh-huh. And uh, a lady named Cassidy Branson bought him. Yes, she came that, to that Brazil. Yeah, and she came to Brazil and she bought uh, a horse. And then she saw me starting him and bought him too. And she's done well. She's won, I don't know, between twenty and 30000 already this year with him. She, and she is like an amateur, okay? She's not a professional. And she won the Yeti Classic last weekend, and she won another Futurity the weekend before that. And uh, I have another horse in Montana, and the girl has been winning with him too. They're both four-year-old, both Futurity horses. Mm-hmm. And both of them have bought more horses from me and left here for me to start and to train them, to send next year to them. So that's really cool. Yeah, that always makes you feel good as a trainer that when you have those repeat customers. Yes. And, and I've been really blessed and lucky that um, in Brazil and in Europe, a lot of the horses that win or have won are horses that I trained. Uh, my business has been more that I like to stay close to home. So I like to start and get them going and then sell them. But um, to see them win in USA or even to have an American buy my horse, it's like, I still can't fathom it. It's, like, it's still to me, it's like unreal. It's like it hasn't set in yet what has happened. And even the fact that I can send them to USA is, I don't know, it's probably the greatest achievement of my life because the reason you don't see more horses from Brazil and USA is because of the tick disease, the periplasmosis. The United States eradicated the disease, so the horse has to be negative to get into the country. But here in almost every other country of the world, almost every horse has it. They don't really have symptoms. It's not a big deal. It's not like Lyme. It's not like EPM. But for the American government, the horse has to be negative. And, you know, this is kind of a long story. You may, I don't know if you want to hear it or cut it out, but I was always told horses from Brazil could not go to USA. Mm -hmm. Then I saw some go, and I talked to my export agent, my import-export agent, and she said, you know, they can if they're negative, blah, blah, blah. So I asked for the name of a vet, and she gave me the name of this vet, that she suggested I send my horses to. I sent seven horses to this vet, okay? And months went by, and I wasn't seeing any difference in the results of the test. 
and I happened to be at a barrel race close to the vet clinic that he was at. So I decided to go over and see the horses. And my heart broke. They were so skinny. They were locked in these stalls where they could not see out. And the vet told me, oh, we don't even take them out of the stall because we don't want to risk them getting a tick. The horses were depressed. And when they saw me, they all went crazy, all seven of them. Oh. And my heart, my heart just crumbled. Thinking about it now, I get emotional. Yeah. So I called, I, I called my truck driver because I, I paid freight. At the time, I paid freight to take my horses to races. And I picked up everything but three stallions. I picked up the mares and gildings that were there, so I picked up four of them. And I paid another guy to get the three. And one of them died on the truck coming home. Oh. He was so weak. And he was an own son of Tracy's out of Guy's Famous Girl, a horse that was a horse of the year in America. One time she won like $300,000. It was a son of hers. And so I, I came home, and it's one of those things where I tell you, whenever anything bad happens, something good comes from it. Mm-hmm. That was a horrible experience in my life. I lost customers. I lost credibility. Uh, I lost friends because not all those horses were mine. Mm-hmm. And I sat down and I said, okay, there has to be a better way. And I started to call vets from all over the country. And I started to make my own protocols, okay? And I have now successfully been able to cure horses and they look better than before. Uh, the last horses that went last year at the quarantine facility in Miami, the guy there said, I've never seen horses look so good from Brazil. And so not only am I curing this disease, I'm keeping the horses healthy and happy and, and it's working. So it sucked, it hurt, it hurt me financially, but now, you know, now it's amazing. So now my entire program is to train horses and send to the United States from here. Talk All about that I do now. Stellar outcome. I'm so happy for you that and happy for the industry. You're changing things. Like you're changing things yeah. in Brazil, you're changing things in the United States, how protocols and how things are done, the health of horses. That's amazing, Shannon. Yeah, and what's really exciting is, I mean, a knock on wood here that everything goes okay. But on Tuesday, I have a dash to say mare leaving for none other than Cassie Mowry. Ah! Cassie. She's the goat. Yeah. She bought, a, yeah, she bought a horse here last year knowing it was positive in the pure plasmosis. She spoke to her vet. Her vet said, yeah, it's curable. She went ahead and bought the horse. And I've been treating it for six months, and now it's finally negative, and she leaves on Tuesday for Florida for the quarantine in Miami. The quarantine in Miami is only seven days. The horses arrive in Miami. They pull their blood the moment they step off the container, and then they just have to wait for the blood results to come back. So it's only seven days in Miami. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, I haven't told a lot of people, and then I, I told Cassie, I said, Cassie, you know, I haven't really told a lot of people you bought a horse here, because sometimes people buy horses and want to keep it kind of quiet, you know? Mm-hmm. And she she is so cool. She's like, no, I don't care. She says, I hope more people buy horses from Brazil. Yeah. And um, and I'm not going to publicize it until, you know, the horse passes quarantine and everything is fine. But, yeah, of all people, I have a horse here for Cassie Mallory. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think it can really get a whole lot better than that. 
No, it can't. And the horse is phenomenal. She's so beautiful. So beautiful. She's a dash to fame out of an own daughter, freaking six. Oh, that's amazing. So when you sell some a horse to someone here in the States, give us a brief walkthrough of exactly what the process is of getting a horse out of the country, the flight, you know, health papers, shots. I know it's not as easy as getting a human to and from. Um, is it harder to get a horse to Brazil, out of Brazil? Kind of walk us through that process a little bit because I am completely illiterate when it comes to that. Sure. Well, first of all, to bring a horse to Brazil, it's, not, it's, it's only complicated in the sense that our government believes that if we import something, it's to improve the genetics and to help the leaders of the country. That's why we have these rules. So right now, if you want to buy a barrel horse in the United States and bring to Brazil, that particular horse has had to have won $30,000 or more. If that horse is under three years old, then its mother and father both had to produce at least two horses that won over $30,000 for barrel racing. And the idea behind that is to improve the genetics here. Uh, Otherwise, the government, we cannot import geldings because the government is like, that's not helping the breeding process, right. okay? So this is why I think Brazilians have grown so fast, is the horses we did import were some of the better ones, the best ones, you know? And here, they have so much money that they do several embryos and, buy, and put them with the best stallions, and so it just made the industry improve by leaps and bounds as far as performance. Now... Um, to bring a horse from Brazil, I'm sorry, from the United States to Brazil costs about twenty dollars to $25,000 with the transport and with all the taxations, okay? Because we have to pay 100% import tax here. Mm-hmm. So if you buy a horse for $10,000, we have to pay another $10,000 in tax here. Wow. This is why if a Brazilian ever approaches you and asks, hey, do you mind to put it a little less? Can you make an invoice for less? You know, do it. They're not trying to be sneaky. It's just the tax rate here is insane. Um, so, and another thing you have to be careful of, for example, a few years ago, a guy bought some cutting horses in USA in an auction, and he brought them in on a fake invoice. And because he bought them in an auction, the results were published online, and the government found it, and he received a $100,000 fine, and the government keeps your horses and they go to the cavalry for the military. Huh. You do not get the horses back. They don't play around. They do not play around. So, now, that's just so. If, if a Brazilian goes to anybody listening to this podcast and asks to buy your horse and asks for a cheap invoice, please give it to them. They're not trying to be sneaky or bad. Our government is really crappy. <laughs> so, um, but that's, that's why we have these rules. It's a government set thing. It's for any animal. It's not just quarter horses. If you want to bring genetics of, of beef cattle or pigs or, you know, the government sets specific guidelines for all of these animals because their idea is if you're going to import it, it better improve the animals we already have here. Now, to go back, you know, our government, the United States government, they don't care about that. You know, they just, fine. So to send a horse back cost-wise, let me back up a little bit. If you want to buy a horse in Brazil, here's the advantage. The advantage is the exchange rate because our dollar is five times weaker than the American dollar. But our way of life is the same. So let's say I want to buy um, 
a candle, and that candle costs five American dollars. That same candle here in Brazil is going to cost five billion dollars. So if a horse is a hundred thousand dollar horse in America, it's the same as a hundred thousand dollar Brazilian dollar horse here. But because the rate is five to one, you get a hundred thousand dollar horse for twenty five thousand dollars. I'm sorry, twenty thousand dollars. Does that make sense? Yep. So a hundred thousand dollar horse, Brazilian dollar horse, is a hundred thousand dollar horse just like what you have there. But when you go to exchange the currencies, if you're American, you're only paying twenty thousand dollars for a hundred thousand dollar horse. So we're because the the exportation is kind of expensive, but you're getting an amazingly well bred animal for cheaper than what you could find it for in the United States. Um, first of all, the I tell I my own personal horses I only advertise them if their paraplasmosis is negative, and I also get free X rays. I mean I do and I do get sixty four X rays, so I advertise them with X rays and negative paraplasmosis. In Cassie's situation, she bought this mare in an auction from a friend of mine, uh, but we did test the horse before the auction, so she did know the paraplasmosis levels before she bought it. Mm-hmm. Okay, she knew the horse was positive. She knew the horse would need, you know, six to eight months of treatment before it could be exported. In. She was okay with that. Mm-hmm. Some people aren't okay with that. So, in my own personal horses. I only offer horses that are negative that can travel at any time. But if someone wanted to come here and buy a horse, my biggest piece of advice is test the horse before you buy because there are some horses that you cannot get negative. There are two types of paraplasmosis. One of them is extremely easy to drop, and the other one is extremely difficult. So I do have horses that cannot go to the United States. I have seen horses that cannot go. So don't think you can just come here and buy any horse. You must test that horse before. But let's say you did test one, and it's a horse that can be easily treated or is already negative. The process is pretty simple. We have to pull some blood exams for the exportation of the country. It takes about those exams are good for 15 days, and then of course you you know you need to have an accountant here because you do have to pay export tax and everything has to be very legal. And in order to import and export, you have to have a specific document called a radar, which I have and some people have. So the horse needs to be with somebody that can legally export the horse and pay the taxes. But once you do all that, it takes 15 days for the exams, and then the horse goes to the airport, boards the plane, and spends seven days in Miami. So the actual exportation part is very fast. Like if the horse is negative, you know, in 20 days you have your horse at your house, you know, from Brazil to there. Mm-hmm. Um, Cost-wise, the exportation is about $15,000. And the biggest cost is actually the USDA in Miami. They charge like $320 a day for the board there. So for seven days you're spending 2500 just board to the government. So, but the entire cost without treatment, okay, without boarding the horse somewhere and treating the animal, because that's going to vary depending the the amount of time the horse needs to be treated. But just to export one is about $15,000 total cost. Taxes paid, imports, everything, you're looking at right at $15,000. So the horse needs to be worth the investment. And most of the horses that 
you know, that are being sold there are. Correct. You know, um, you know, for example, this horse that the girl just won the Yeti Classic on, okay? I sold her. I don't know if she doesn't get mad if I tell the price. I don't think she will. I sold her that horse for $15,000. Mm-hmm. Because $15,000 is 80000 in my money. Yeah. Okay? So she got an $80,000 horse for $15,000, and then she paid another 15000 to take it home. So if she has a horse that's winning securities, and she has 30000 invested in him. Mm-hmm. You know? And he's, he's the own son of, he's a swift by design out of the daughter of El Shady. El Shady is Brazil's number one stallion. Um, but most of the horses I have sold to the States are all Dash to Fames and Trace Sages mm-hmm. and a couple of El Shadies because people are wanting a new genetic, a new bloodline, you know, although El Shady is not in incentives. So, um, but what mainly sells are Trace Sages and Dash to Fame or something already running and competing and winning. Because, you know, like I told you, a horse that's running, competing, and winning here is, let's say, let's say it's, it's a gelding, and it's winning here, you know, that's going to be a $150,000 horse here, and that's going to be a $30,000 horse to an American with transport, another 15. So you're buying a, a horse that's running 16s on standard patterns for under $50,000. Wow. This has been the first episode of a three-part series that will come out each Wednesday morning for the next three weeks. I know, I know, but there was way more to barrel racing in Brazil than I could have ever imagined. And I can't wait for you guys to hear what's coming in the next few weeks. In the meantime, visit Shannon's website at skequineproducts.com where she has her Pro Light Saddle Series, her amazingly designed spinal relief pad, and so much more. Be sure to follow her on Facebook and Instagram where she does post some really amazing content. You can also find me on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at The Barrel Horse Life, where you'll find some behind-the-scenes content, store merch, and new episodes, and I promise I post some really good memes. Visit the store website at www.thebarrelhorselife.store. This episode of the podcast was edited, produced, and marketed by me, Amy Davenport, right from my tiny recording closet. This is The Barrel Horse Life.